Good morning, Grace. Jim's right. This is uh, the end of our Genesis uh, study for two years, next week with a reflection service. But yeah, first Sunday in January 2017, we began within the beginning. And here we are. This has been quite a book, hasn't it? Um, As we enter into this last passage this morning, there's one verse from Hebrews 11 that's been on my mind. I want us to start with thinking about. Hebrews 11 is this chapter uh, in the book of Hebrews that recounts all these stories of men and women who uh, walked by faith and lived by faith and that faith was evident in various ways in in their life and choices they they made and priorities that they held. Uh, But Hebrews 11.13 says of Abraham and Sarah specifically, but what's true of of many of the, the patriarchs and others in Hebrews 11, the following. Hebrews 11, 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So not only did they walk by faith as is is seen in different ways we've seen through the book of Genesis, but in particular this morning, I want us to think about that these also died in faith that they faced death, that they um, approached death and then died in faith. They crossed the finish line in faith. They didn't tap out. They didn't abandon God. They didn't abandon God's promises, but they believed in him even in their dying. And notice in that verse what it says, it was not the reason that they died in faith. It wasn't because as they neared death that they saw that they'd received everything God had promised and God had tied it up in a nice little bow and package and they just were able to, ah, wonderful, and just die. No, it says that they died in faith not having received things promised. Some things were, many things were left to be continued, but here's what they died seeing. Seeing and greeting these things promised from afar having seen them and greeted them from afar. This is a seeing that's by faith, not by sight. Death is scary, isn't it? Dying is scary. George Burns, I think, was the one who famously said, I'm not so much scared of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) But it's not funny, though, is it, really? Because dying um, is scary. Sometimes we see death coming, for a long way, we just, it's slowly moving toward us. Other times it, it comes out of the blue when we least expect it and it, just, and it just knocks our feet out from under us. Dying is scary. Things that accompany dying are no picnic. Often dying includes physical suffering, includes emotional heartache and duress and anguish, both of those who are dying and those who are with them. Sometimes dying is accompanied by great regret, feeling of unrealized aspirations or uh, sort of desires in life that didn't happen. Sometimes they're surrounded by irreconciled or strained relationships. Satan would love any or all of those things to swamp our boats. That we wouldn't die in faith. Dying's hard. But these things don't have to. They don't have to make us lose our faith. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of officiating a memorial service here on this stage, right in, sandwiched in between our, our prayer conference on that Saturday of a man 
whose name was Labib Mubarak, and his wife, uh, Martha, just became a member just a couple of weeks ago at Grace, and he wasn't able to in the last few months of his life because of his health. He, he couldn't be here regularly, but he loved the Lord. He walked by faith. Just a few things I want you to know about him briefly as we start this sermon. At age 13, he, was born, or he grew up in Egypt, and a missionary led him to Christ as a 13-year-old, and he immediately decided, I don't want to be a doctor like my dad wants me to be. I want to be an evangelist and a missionary. And at age 14, he finished high school and began traveling through North Africa in his early adulthood, sharing the gospel throughout North Africa with a Bible, tearing pages out of his Bible, crumpling them up and handing them secretly to people in parks and zoos that he would talk to about Jesus. It's amazing. I asked his, his sons, uh, do you still have that Bible? And they said, yes. I said, if you look through it to figure out what pages are missing, how amazing. I mean, to look at it, oh, he gave him John 3. Oh man, he gave him Romans 8. He ended up in the States wanting to go back to be a missionary and an evangelist in Egypt long-term, but uh, his reputation there and his bold witness uh, had, had made it so unsafe for him that he ended up not being able to return. For decades, he worked at Forest Lawn um, here locally. Get this, God had him for decades sitting with people and helping them plan for their own burial one day and took full advantage of every opportunity to proclaim Christ as people are thinking about what we just sang as flowers, summer flowers fade and die and youth and fame and beauty hurries by. It's a man I wish I had known more, but he didn't just walk by faith and live by faith. He died in faith. It was beautiful. He, even though his health was not great, um, the Lord took him unexpectedly. He had a, he had a massive heart attack on a Tuesday. The, the weekend before, two days before, the Lord in his kindness had gathered his family, his two sons and daughters-in-law who live in uh, out of state, home for a family wedding. And they were all together on that weekend. And the older son, John, whose wife is expecting, said one of the things his dad said at one point is he's kind of watching everyone celebrating at the, the wedding re reception and he has his boys next to him. He just said, you know, Lord willing, I'll, I, I, I'll see your son born and I'll see you two begin your medical practices. They're both finishing their medical residencies and he said but if not I'm content which allowed Martha and the sons to grieve in an entirely different way sad and yet with hope he died in faith and he died passing on a faith that I could tell his wife Martha and his sons have grasped onto as well and they're walking with it's beautiful I want to be one of those who die in faith don't you yeah so this morning, after two years in Genesis, we're at the very last passage, and it's got three final scenes. Jacob gets his last scene. Joseph's brothers have a last scene. And then Joseph gets the very last scene in Genesis 49, starting in verse 29 is where we're going to pick it up. <clears throat> But Jacob's last scene and Joseph's last scene are like bookends, and they both, in their scene, die in faith. They die in a way that is demonstrating a faith that they want the generations after them to follow them in. And sandwiched in between, Joseph's brother's last scene doesn't tell us about how they died, but it does give us one last glimpse of a moment where they were confronted with and comforted by the grace of God and reminded that God's past grace was reason for them not to fear, but to walk by faith in his future grace. So let me pray and let's dig in. 
Uh, Lord, if you, if you don't help us, Lord, uh, we, we will all shipwreck our faith. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to help us see these unseen things, these things that are yet to come that we are to hope in. Um, Thank you for the things you've done in the past, for the cross and the resurrection uh, that are a guarantee of the future, Lord, as we're gonna remember this morning, even in the Lord's Supper. But I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith this morning, that, that we would imitate the faith of those who have gone before us and died in faith, setting an example for us to follow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Jacob's last scene. Look at chapter 49. We'll jump in in verse 29. This is at the same moment where Jacob is on his deathbed and has just spoken these prophetic words to each one of his sons about things that are to come. It calls them blessings, although some of them, as you know, we saw last week, are sort of strange and cryptic and won't be clear until generations later. But this is the moment we're jumping in on here. Uh, verse 29. Then he, Jacob commanded them, all the sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan. You sure which field it is, by the way, right now? Okay, good. Uh, It's the one that Abraham bought with, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that's in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. So just pause here for a minute. This is the first part of his scene is he gives instructions about his burial. He wants uh, to be buried in a way that demonstrates his faith and leaves it as a legacy for his sons to follow. And he'd already told Joseph this back in chapter 47. He'd already said to Joseph, hey, when I die, don't bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me there. But now he wants all the sons to hear it and to promise him that they'll do it, that he wants them all present at his burial. And he tells them whom he wants to be buried with and where he wants to be buried. Each are significant. He says, I want to be buried with my fathers, with Abraham and Sarah, and with Isaac and Rebekah, and what should surprise us here, and with Leah. Leah? (laughs) I thought Rachel was the one he loved, his beloved, the the beautiful wife, the one who gave birth to uh, Joseph and died bearing Benjamin. So interesting, he doesn't say, find that spot where she died when Benjamin was born and go bury me with her. No, he says, I want to be laid next to Leah, along with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. Bury me with my fathers. In his death and burial, he is displaying his faith in God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and now to him that he knows will be passed on. And he wants his burial place to be a reminder of his confidence in God's promises. And that's why he tells them where. He goes into so much detail about this field. It's not just that he's getting old and he's forgetting that he already said that, although maybe, but he's saying, I want you to bury me on that little postage stamp of land that Abraham bought to bury Sarah. It's the only bit of land that Abraham possessed. It uses that word twice in in, in here. It's It's this possession, that one little field with that one little cave in it. That's where I want to be buried. 
It's interesting, after 17 years of the good life in Egypt, he doesn't say, just bury me here where my sons and my grandsons can visit my grave and and sort of remember me. He says, no, I want you to bury me on that little plot of land, travel all the way up there and do it because with his eyes, what he saw as a little stamp of land uh, by faith, he saw and greeted from afar was the beginning of a kingdom that was gonna spread throughout all the land occupied by 12 tribes one day and a throne. And he knew that one day on that throne, one of his descendants would sit and all the nations of the earth would bow to him. So he gives these instructions and then he breathes his last and he was gathered to his people. Now chapter 50 is it being played out, his brothers doing exactly uh, what he asked and then some. It's crazy. This is a very humble request he makes just to his sons, go bury me in that little cave and then come back. But look what happens. Verse one, Joseph first, he fell on his face, father's face and wept over him and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it. That's how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if if now I've found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, "My, my father made me swear saying I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father and then I will return. All right, that's still a humble request, right? Well, look what happens from here. Pharaoh answers, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. So who are those? Well, they're the elders of his household, Pharaoh's household, so important people in his house, um, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Verse eight, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, only their children, flocks and herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, all the way up, just about to enter the land beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made mourning for his father seven days, but not just Joseph. Verse 11 says, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of the Egyptians. It's beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he'd commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he'd buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who'd gone up with him to bury his father. Wow. All right, so Jacob's last scene, I'm calling a funeral fit for a king. It's not what Jacob asks for, but this is what God gives him. 
after weeping over uh, his dad's body, um, he realizes we're going to have to carry him 200 miles through the desert. It's going to be a long journey. And so he has his father's body prepared in the Egyptian manner, mummified, I mean, embalmed um, and put in in a coffin, assumedly, for, for transportation. And while this is going on for 40 days, it seems like nationwide, all the people of Israel mourn Jacob's death for 70 days, which is significant. Historical records say that pharaohs would be mourned for 72 days by their people. So Jacob gets just two days shy of what Pharaoh would have gotten when Pharaoh died. This this nomadic uh, shepherd, Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, who, by the way, had saved all their lives. 70 days they mourn for Jacob. And then Joseph has a tricky situation to navigate a little bit because if you think, Pharaoh has rolled out the red carpet for Joseph's family and for Jacob. He says, leave your stuff. Just come down. I'll give you the best of the land and, and the choicest places to live and I'll provide for you and all your children. Just come and, 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 and Egypt will take care of you. And Joseph knows his dad has said, don't bury me in Egypt. Carry me out of Egypt. So he sends a message to Pharaoh kind of diplomatically, and he doesn't bring up the point about my dad didn't really want to be buried here. <laughs> he says, my dad already had a, a tomb. He'd already carved it out for himself. It's waiting for him. And he, he made me promise that I would bury him there. May I please, he says, go bury my father there. And God grants favor. But more than that, just saying yes, he gives him this entourage of all of the servants of Pharaoh and all the elders of Egypt and a huge military, military escort of horses and chariots along with all of their family and extended family. I mean, I, I don't, this must be a huge company, a very great company, all make their way out of Egypt and travel 200 miles up to bury Jacob. Maybe think in 94 when Richard Nixon's funeral uh, happened uh, over at the Nixon Library. I lived here in the area and my friend in college and I got our beach chairs and we went down to Yorba Linda Boulevard at a place along the parade route. We wanted to see this because all these living ex-presidents and first ladies were going to be there at this thing. And so we're sitting there and all of a sudden all the secret service and the motorcade starts coming down and shutting down all the traffic lights and stopping all the traffic. And then all of a sudden the limos come and one after the other of the, you know, Lincoln town cars with the secret service. And then the limos with the flags on the front. And you're like, I wonder which president is in there. And, and they just keep coming by and coming by and coming. It just never stopped. And finally it goes off and just like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything quite like this. Well, picture this, but in the desert, traveling all the way back to Canaan to bury Jacob in this little field in this cave. It's strange, isn't it? The procession gets all the way short of entering the land and they stop at this threshing floor, which would have been a raised place for threshing the wheat so that the wind could blow the chaff. So in this very visually conspicuous place, they stop and for seven days, like the Hebrew custom, they're gonna mourn their father and all the Egyptians join into it. And I think they're sincere. It doesn't say that, but Joseph is the one that they said at the end of the famine, you've saved our lives. And it says they grieve with Joseph and his family so uh, loudly that the Canaanites are drawn to this and say, what in the world? And they don't say, wow, those Hebrews are really sad. They say, no, the mourning of the Egyptians is grievous. And they name the place after this. This act of, of honoring this man by all these Egyptians. Verse 12 
through 14, the sons kind of make the last leg. It sounds like the rest of the company stays there and they, the family goes in and buries him next to Leah and then they return. They take one last look at the land of promise and they leave and that's the last child of Abraham who's going to be buried in Canaan for 400 years. So here's a question. Why does Jacob get this royal treatment? Abraham got three verses Basically, Abraham, it says, he breathed his last, died in a good old age, man old, full of years. He was gathered to his people. Just tells us Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Maybe there was others there, I I assume, but it just mentions Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac gets one verse. Isaac breathed his last. He died, was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Another just family affair. But here we get to Jacob and he gets the largest state funeral recorded in the Bible. He didn't ask for it. Here's what I think is going on here. I think God wanted to show Jacob's sons a glimpse of what Jacob died having seen and greeted from afar. The thing Jacob was confident of is one day there's going to be a throne and a kingdom to which all the nations will look and through whom all the nations will be blessed. And here, God provides this huge entourage to accompany the burial of Jacob and this scene that the sons would have surely remembered throughout their lives. You know, Jacob wouldn't be there to see all this, but his sons would. The sons would get a glimpse of what Jacob died by faith, believing would happen. Would happen. This funeral fit for a king is like God saying, he's not crazy. Can you see what he sees? Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen or the, the seenness of things not seen. It sort of sounds like an oxymoron, the conviction of things that you can't see, but you actually can And Jacob died with this kind of faith and grace. I want to encourage us. We have seen so much more than Jacob had to look at to encourage us to believe in the things that are unseen that we would greet from afar, that God has still not brought about. We haven't seen it all. Death continues. The world is broken. We are broken. We're still waiting for God to make all things right. Like Romans says, groaning along with all creation until the world is is the way God intended from the beginning but we've been given a glimpse of first fruits too and more than what, what Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons were able to see. A man buried in a cave in a field, believing with all his heart that God would fulfill his la- every last promise. We've been given the cross and the resurrection. Think about this. What first fruits do we have that one day a king of kings will rule over an everlasting kingdom where justice will reign and to which all the nations will stream and bow down and give worship? It's an empty cave in Jerusalem. There's no body there because Jesus who died at the cross rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming again one day in glory. And we look back on that cave that's empty and we're given assurance that God is gonna fulfill and bring to completion his good plans. We have to remind one another of this because life and death make it hard for us to see this and we need others to come alongside us. I loved the, the image that Fred Sanders gave last week about how God's prophecy works at times where he lights up a far distant spot on the horizon and says that's going to happen one day. 
even though right now it's complete darkness. But I can see that day. We can see that day. And that's what Jacob does here in his death for his sons. He gives them a glimpse of the light on the horizon. And in Jesus, we have an even greater glimpse of light on the horizon. And we need to remind one another um, that that kingdom is coming and we'll be part of it if we're in Christ. All right, that's scene one. All right, that's Jacob's last scene. It's a pretty good scene. The brothers get a last scene. I call this scene grace too good to be true. Look at verse 15. We think things were all good between Joseph and his brothers, but verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the uh, transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke this to him. And his brothers then also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You did. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he says it again. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. For 17 years, Joseph had provided food for them and safety for them and shelter for them and their children. But in verse 15, we realize that for 17 years, all along they've been thinking, this is too good to be true. He can't really forgive us for all that. There's no way. He hates us. And he's just playing the long game. As long as dad's alive, dad's this restraining factor and Joseph is gonna keep it together. But now that dad's out of the way, We're dead. That's what they think. So their plan is this. It seems to be a lie. We're not told that, but it's improbable that Jacob wouldn't have just told Joseph this himself. But they they send a message to Joseph and they try to still leverage Joseph's love for his dad even after the grave by saying, "Uh, Joseph, your dad had one more dying wish that you didn't know about, but we do. (laughs) And, And it's this. He told us to tell you, for us, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin and the evil they did to you. They don't even put their request for forgiveness in the first person. They put it in in Jacob's mouth. Their assumption seems to be that Joseph would never accept their apology, but maybe he'd accept dad's apology for them. And look at Joseph's response. He's sad. He, He weeps at this. You just imagine, he realizes For 17 years, my brothers have all been walking around still terrified of me, still waiting for the other shoe to drop, seeing the kindness and the food on their table every day, and still they're not convinced that I mean it. What I said 17 years ago, that my hugs and my tears and my embraces were not genuine when I called them brothers, even after they sold me into slavery, that I didn't mean all that. He weeps at this, that they've lived 17 years not believing that he had forgiven them. 
Well, verse 18, it seems like the brothers kind of heard that it's, it's, it's going okay, that Joseph had this emotional response. So then all of a sudden they're here and they bow down before him and they say what they said 17 years ago. Just make us your servants. Behold, we're your servants. Kind of reminds me of the prodigal son when he finally hit bottom and he realized, I got to go back to dad and I got to go apologize. He's probably not going to accept my apology. But maybe dad will say, all right, you can go live with the servants out back. That's what he thought. Maybe if I offer myself to him as a servant, that'll make things okay. And the brothers seem to do the same thing. Uh, We're your servants. Maybe that will make it right. So then we can know that there's no wrath coming anymore if we're your servants. But Joseph doesn't even take their, acknowledge their, their offer for servants. He says, don't fear. He says, don't fear. You don't have to say that. First, he says, here's why you don't have to fear. Am I in the place of God? Think about how Joseph could have been tempted with his power once he finally was at at Pharaoh's right hand to even convince himself sort of with righteous indignation because his his brothers had been evil and he had been unjustly treated. He could have convinced himself, you know, God has raised me to this place to sort of wield the power of the state to administer justice. I mean, how tempted might he have been to drop the hammer? But he hadn't. He recognized their sin isn't against me. Ultimately, it's against God. And God is the one who alone says, vengeance is mine and I shall repay. And Joseph had left that to God. And he tells them in the next verse exactly why um, he's leaving this to God. He's learned uh, this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One commentator put it like this. He had come to learn that God's providence extends even over man's malice, even over man's evil intentions. Notice, Joseph doesn't minimize their sin. He doesn't say, guys, it wasn't that bad. He says, no, you meant it for evil. You intended it to have evil results. In other words, if your intentions had succeeded, I wouldn't have risen to power in Egypt and been in this place to help anybody. If your intentions came to fruition, I would have probably died a slave, languished my whole life. But God's intentions, what God meant in all this, trumped what you intended. God meant through your evil to bring about a great good. And the mind-blowing thing is, he says, he intended a great good for you through your evil intent. He intended to bless you through your intended evil. It's incredible. He says, the food that's been on your table is there in part because you acted wickedly and you sold me into slavery. But God had different intentions with that and their intentions even for your good. You, your murderous intent, God has used to spare your lives. Isn't that what the gospel says to us? That our murderous intent, God used to spare our lives and give us eternal life. That's the gospel. Through the cross, which was the most evil event in history, that many conspired with evil intentions. Judas and Pilate and all the people and the high priest, and they all conspired, and the crowds who yelled crucified him, all meant evil. They all meant for Jesus to stay dead. But God meant those things for good. Even good for those who wanted Jesus to stay dead. 
Peter's Pentecost sermon amazes me every time I read it. The first gospel sermon is preached to a crowd that had people in the crowd who actually literally killed the Lord of glory. And Peter looks him in the eye on behalf of Jesus and says, repent and believe when their hearts are cut to the quick. He says, you'll receive forgiveness of your sins. The Holy Spirit will come to dwell in you. This good news is for you and your children, Peter says. That's what the gospel speaks to us. But just like his brothers, I think that we can have a similar response to grace like that. Come on. That's just too good to be true. Do you understand my sin? Do you understand the thoughts I have? Do you understand the thoughts I've had? Do you understand the hardness of my heart? Do you understand the, the ways I've hurt people? Do you understand all my sin? It's bad. Surely, God, your grace isn't great enough for that. And the gospel says, no, it is. We're tempted to believe, think that God is sort of hiding his true feelings. We're tempted to think of God's grace, I think, at times. Like I heard Ray Ortland Jr. one time give this great illustration. He said, we, we tend to think of grace sometimes wrongly as though when we came to Christ, God made a huge deposit into your checking account and a debit card. And that's forgiveness and grace. And every time you step out of line and every time you continue to sin against him, boop, you just swipe that card, boop. And the balance keeps going down just a little bit each time. But the fear is one of these days, if I keep swiping that card, that balance is going to get down and it's going to hit zero. And then I'm in trouble. And that's not the gospel. And that's not how grace works. The reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly is to remind us that God's grace is not too good to be true. That the cup and the bread we're to look at and recognize the God who alone says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, has. He has avenged your sin and your wickedness and he's, and, he, and he's repaid it onto Christ. Jesus shed his blood and he gave his body to endure it so that then God, like Joseph, can say to us what he says. Don't fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. It's good news is for your kids too. It's a gift that's offered to us, but we have to receive it on his terms. We have to believe it. And we sing in, in Amazing Grace, um, his grace, my fears relieved. And to a great extent, that's true. But here's the tension. I think we all struggle to, to, to really believe the grace in such a way that it really relieves our fears. And the Lord's Supper is saying to us, don't fear. Don't fear. All right, that's Joseph's brother's last scene. Encouraging us here as we're about to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. But Joseph gets a last scene. I don't want to shortchange it or skip, lose, uh, run out of time. Joseph's last scene, I'm calling Footsteps of Faith Worth Following because that's what he intends for his brothers and, and the generations that come after him is that they would follow in his footsteps of faith. Let me read the last few verses. Chapter uh, 50, 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. This is feeling familiar, right? Kind of to Jacob's scene here. Saying, look what he says. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. 
And so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's sort of the twist at the end. After Jacob's burial instructions, we think, well, surely he's going to die in faith the same way. Go bury me in Canaan with my fathers, right next to, to, to my dad and, and, and Leah. But no, he says, God is going to visit us again one day, but it's not going to be for a long time. Hundreds of years are going to pass, he told Abraham. Our people are going to suffer. They're going to be slaves. They're going to be in, in affliction. They're going to cry out to the Lord. And God is going to, in his timing, finally respond to the outcry. And he will bring us into the land, but it's going to be a long wait. And so here's what Joseph does. He says, I want you to hold on to my bones. I want you to delay my burial until the day God delivers you. And I want you to hold on to my bones. I want you to keep my bones here from generation to generation because you're going to be tempted to think, Lord, have you forgotten us? Are you really coming back? And when you do, I want you to remember my coffin. I died in faith that I am not going to be buried in Egypt. I'm going to be buried there. And for hundreds of years they did. We know this because when Moses finally comes and Pharaoh finally breaks because God, after all the plagues, and he says, fine, go. If, Exodus 13, make sure that we know for all of us who are saying, hey, what about the bones? <laughs> Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. Moses becomes the trustee of the bones in the box. And for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, every time they pick up and pack up the tent and the tabernacle and they move on, someone's got to hold on to the box and the bones. I wonder how many times someone says, why are we dragging this mummy around? <laughs> it's heavy. We've got enough. We've got the tabernacle, all those gold things and stuff, and the box. We've got another box with the law and all, all, all that in here. And, and, and he says, no, I want you to carry this around. And we know that they did it because finally at the end of Joshua chapter 24, after the land has been cleared and all of Israel has gotten their portion and they are in the land, it says this, the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the son, father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. I love that. The reason they were carrying that body all around for 400 years is because Joseph wanted them to be certain of God's promises, and he left himself behind as a visual aid. He would have been grieved if his brothers and his sons and the next generation after saw his death in faith and decided, I don't believe it. He wanted the next generation and the next generation to follow him in the footsteps of faith and keep trusting, even though this is hard and even though it's getting harder. Joseph was right. Jacob was right. Abraham was right. Well, Jesus has also left behind a visual aid for us that we're about to celebrate. But it's not his remains because his bones aren't around anywhere. He, he's got them still. He was only in the grave for a weekend. He's alive now. But these reminders of his death, his bloodshed and his body given as a ransom for many, we are to carry with us and keep celebrating and remembering and remembering and remembering until the day that God visits us and Jesus returns. And we won't have to do this anymore. We're going to celebrate forever with him. This is what this is reminding us of. And this assures us that he will most certainly complete what he began. Amen?
We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment here. There's going to be stations, four across here and one over there. The far right, that plate over there is gluten-free if that's a a need that you have. Um, And there'll be servers there as well. But as you come forward in your own timing, you're going to tear a piece of bread from the the, the loaf that we all share. And you're going to dip it in the cup that everyone else in line with you is as a reminder that it's the same body of Christ that was given for all of us and the same blood of Christ that was shed for all of us. And the servers are going to look at you and remind you of that. And take that and eat that and give thanks to Jesus who gave himself for you and for the hope that we have because of it. If you are a believer trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and you are not living a divided life and saying, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving all this, this stuff over here, that's not yours to be Lord over. And you're clinging to unrepentant sin. The Bible would warn you about hardening your heart by eating this uh, and drinking this meal in an unworthy way. And it would call you even this morning to let go of this over here and come and receive forgiveness, the full grace that covers it all this morning. If you have kids with you who are not ready to take the Lord's Supper, please come forward with them. Ask any of the servers to just stop and pray for them that they would trust Jesus um, one day. Uh, Let me pray and then let's celebrate. Uh, Lord, thank you for this book of Genesis and the way you've used it for two years here in the life of our church, in my life. Thank you for the faith of these two men and the way they died in faith. And God, I want to die in faith. And Lord, I know that we here in this room, we want to cross the finish line still in faith. Lord, I pray you'd help us this morning to persevere. I pray you'd use us in one another's life to spur one another on uh, so that none of us abandon Jesus. Thank you for this meal that reminds us that your grace is not too good to be true. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.